And we pray that the seed of the word of God, as it is preached, would be miraculously lodged down deep into the soil of hearts. Lord, so often that word doesn't take root, and so we, we pray for the miracle of the opening up of that seed into good fruit. A thousand times, Lord, what's been sown. I pray that hundreds of things would happen with this word over these next moments that we could never anticipate it, that you would open up possibilities, Lord, as we think about lost people around us. Father, I ask that above all things, the love of Christ would compel us and constrain us as a congregation to move outward in concern with those who do not know the great gospel and forgiveness in Christ. Come now and make those things a reality, Lord, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Though I first heard these words from Christian pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie, it turns out they may have actually been borrowed by Oswald Smith. Um, Either way, they are a powerful statement about the priority of evangelism in the local church, and these are the words. If our church does not evangelize, our church will fossilize. Our church does not evangelize. Our church will fossilize. It's a frightening truth, and it motivates me very, very deeply these days as I think about what the Lord has for us in the days ahead. Picture it, a fossilized church, a lifeless, hardened, but well-preserved picture of life that used to exist at one point, life forms that once existed, evidence of life in a remote past. A fossilized church is one that used to exist as a movement, but, but now exists as a, as a monument. A church that is a museum. The great irony of a fossilized church, of course, is that the church is the only organization in the entire world that Jesus Christ has promised to build. Uh, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. Christ is not building our federal government. He's not building our educational systems, our our corporations. He's not building even our, our relief agencies. Jesus is building his church, Matthew 16, 18. But what Matthew 16, 18 does not say is that Jesus is building his church alone. He's not building his church alone. He is not working alone. Evangelism is the lifeblood of the church, and a church that does not evangelize will, in time, fossilize. Trusting that your, your Bibles are already open to 2 Corinthians 5, let's just dive right into the first of three points today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Point number one, many are the motives for personal evangelism. Many are the motives for personal 
evangelism. Now, at this point, a brief definition of personal evangelism is probably in order, just so we can level the playing field. Personal evangelism is telling another person the good news about Jesus. That's what evangelism is, telling another person the good news about Jesus. Personal evangelism is communicating the message of the gospel from one person to another. The gospel, the good news of the life and death and resurrection and soon return of Jesus. Evangelism is making that news known, calling people to trust Christ, turning from sin, trusting Christ. And many are the motives for personal evangelism. But let's notice here on the front end, many are the excuses for lack of personal evangelism too. Our excuses are legion, ranging from the fear of man to indifference toward perishing people. Interestingly, ministry itself can keep us from evangelism. And much of the time, we find ourselves derailed from the mission simply by our own daily self-absorption of family and career and hobbies, and the list goes on and on. But this point is designed to encourage us in evangelism, so let's head there. Um, I would see in these opening verses here in our text at least four motives for personal evangelism. There may be more. I saw four. The first motive is found in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's the first motive in personal evangelism here in this text, the fear of the Lord. Paul begins in verse 11 with a therefore. And all you would have to do is look up to verse 10 to see what that therefore is there. Four. Second Corinthians 5.10, for we, this is, this is motivating to Paul, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Are your neighbors ready for this? Mine aren't. The judgment seat of Christ. Your co-workers or classmates, do your family members have a proper regard for the author of the universe? Are they rightly related to him by grace through faith in his son through the gospel? The one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, according to Jesus, Matthew 10, 28. Many are the motives for personal evangelism. But this one is important. This was priority for Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And Paul didn't just talk a big game to believers. This is the way he talked to unbelievers. Uh, in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul comes to the crescendo of his great sermon at the Areopagus in Athens. And he says to his listeners, the time of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of all of this, he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. 
The fear of the Lord made its way into Paul's personal appeals to lost people. Many are the motives for personal evangelism, and the fear of the Lord is, should be a basic drive for us. Another motive for personal evangelism is found in verses 11 to 13. We can put it this way. This is a surprising one, I think. Integrity before other believers. Integrity before other believers. Listen to the second half of verse 11 into verse 13. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Integrity before other believers. Now, we won't spend a whole lot of time here, but we've got to note this at least in passing, that Paul cared about his reputation as an evangelist toward the church in Corinth or by the church in Corinth. On the one hand, we need to balance what Paul says in a text here uh, with what he says to the same church in 1 Corinthians 4.3. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Um, Paul was not losing sleep about how well-liked he was in Corinth. That's not what he's getting at here. We'd have this guy all wrong if we pegged him for a hand-wringing people-pleaser. It's not the Apostle Paul. But Paul did know that his reputation as a bearer of the gospel rose and fell, at least in part, by the fact that believers knew he was the real deal when it came to evangelism. Do you have a reputation in this church as someone who builds relationships with lost people? I'm not asking if you're Billy Graham or Brian Stout. I'm just asking this. How are your connections with people who are far from Christ this morning? More to the point, if I were to ask the same question to the person sitting next to you, what would they say about your connections with lost people? Paul says in verse 11, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. Is it known to our conscience, your connections with lost people? Here's a diagnostic question for you. If everybody at Mount Free Church shared their faith with unbelievers as often as you do, if you were the benchmark, how would that go for us as a church? If your evangelism was the baseline for the entire congregation, like Paul in verse 12, would we have cause to boast in you? Many are the motives for personal evangelism. Integrity before other believers is one of them. Third motive, and this is the reason for the title of today's sermon and for the entire sermon series, the love of Christ. Love of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 17. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live to themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Love is the spring from which evangelism flows. 
Paul says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. If you are a Christian this morning, do you know and do you believe how much Christ loves you? Are you confident in your assurance of Christ's love for you? Are you sure of it? Second question would be, do lost people around you reap the benefits of that assurance? Paul knew that Jesus loved him. He knew it. And because he knew it, so was everyone else going to know it. He uses very strong language in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Controls us. It's a word in Paul's usage here that can be translated and is translated in some versions, constrains us. Christ's love surrounds and hems in and dominates us. Christ's love impels and urges us on and overmasters and overwhelms us. Love the paraphrase in the New English Bible that says, The love of Christ leaves us no choice. The love of Christ leaves us no choice. So verse 15 explains how the love of Christ orients us outward toward other people in evangelistic concern. He says, He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A Christian who lives for themselves is a contradiction in terms. That's what unbelievers do. He died and was raised that we might not live for ourselves. Now here's... The trick. Unbelievers do live for themselves. That's the only game in town when you don't know Christ. Paul knows this. He knows that when we as believers look on to the lives of unbelievers, we tend to see more problems than potentials. We tend to see in somebody else who doesn't know Jesus more liabilities than assets, more costs than benefits. And so he gives us one more motive in verses 16 and 17. I'm going to read it for us and then unpack it. This is terribly motivating. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So here's, here's the last motive. Do evangelism with a vision of what unbelievers around you may one day become. Let's make this concrete. Do evangelism with a vision of what your unbelieving family member or unbelieving friend or unbelieving coworker or neighbor or classmate will one day become. Get a vision for lost people. Don't forget that if you're in Christ today, that means someone had a vision for you. They did, by definition, if you love Jesus today. Picture an unbelieving person in your life right now. Can you imagine them in Christ? Can you imagine the person you're thinking about, a new creation. Can you imagine this person, a member of this church? 
Imagine this person, a community group leader in this church, a deacon in this church, an elder in this church. Can you imagine? And if not, why not? C.S. Lewis was a person who had a vision for people. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he writes, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, Lewis says. All of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. And he summarizes with this statement. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It's a striking thought. It can and does motivate toward evangelism. Paul thought so. So there are, there are many motives to personal evangelism. Fear of the Lord. Integrity with other believers. The love of Christ. And the future of unbelievers that you know. If our church does not evangelize, our church will fossilize. Many are the motives for personal evangelism. Second point today. We are the means in personal evangelism. We are the means in personal evangelism. Now, we've been assuming this here, but now Paul says it explicitly in verses 18 to 20. Uh, Six times in three verses, we read the first person plural pronoun. Us or we. Who is to do this evangelism? Us. We are. Do you ever stop to think that the only generation that will reach this generation is our generation? In the West Tonka area alone, there are 25,000 people. We've said it before. 25,000 people within a 10-minute drive of this building. The vast majority of whom don't claim allegiance to any local church. How are they going to hear? And don't say the person next to me. Because the person next to you is saying the same thing. This is how people get dropped body surfing at a concert. I thought you had them. No, I thought you had them. Right? You cannot pass the buck here. If you are a Christian, God has reconciled you to Christ. And he has entrusted to you the very ministry of reconciliation with which you were reconciled. This is stunning. Look at verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So he's reconciled us, verse 18, in order to give us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 19. 
And he's entrusting to us the, the message of reconciliation. The ministry and the message. We'll get to the message in point three. Let's just focus on the ministry for a moment. This is a wonderful word picture. In verse 20, Paul likens the ministry of reconciliation to the work of an ambassador. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Sometimes we need to be careful because a a word that can trip something in our minds uh, isn't the way that uh, it would have been used in the first century. Uh, But in this case, it's very similar. The idea of an ambassador in Paul's day is very, very close to what an ambassador does today in the 21st century. An ambassador is a statesman, someone who represents the interests of their nation abroad. An ambassador is a person who, open, who communicates openness and friendly relations to foreign peoples. An ambassador is a, is a diplomatic presence in a foreign land. This is a, this is a great picture for who we are as followers of Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Here we have no lasting city, but we await a savior from that city whose architect and builder is God. Think about it for a moment. If you're a follower of Christ, you're an ambassador, and that means that your home, for example, is an embassy. It's an embassy on foreign soil, as all embassies are, But that means, just like an ambassador, your house, its members, even your vehicles have diplomatic immunity. You should invite the nation around you in to the knowledge of your king. And when unbelievers do come to your homes, I hope they do. We were just figuring out today what it looks like to to create a little bit more time. It was yesterday in our schedules to have unbelievers more in our homes than we do in our own home. If you're a person who does hospitality, which I hope you are, unbelievers should love coming to your home. And when they do, I hope you're not back on your heels when it comes to speaking of Christ. It's one thing to be in somebody else's territory. There, it's still your father's world. But especially on home territory, if you do hospitality, don't be, don't be mousy about the fame of the name of your king. You are an ambassador for Christ, a statesman for the glory of the most high God. Verse 20, therefore we are, an, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the church that does not evangelize will Fossilize. Many are the motives for personal evangelism, but we are the means. We are. Well, what do we say? What's, what's the content of the gospel? And that leads us to our final point today. Union with Christ is the message of personal evangelism. Union with Christ is the message of personal evangelism. If you ever wanted just a single sentence summary of what the gospel is, you could do a whole lot worse than verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you know the gospel song, which we're going to sing after the sermon, then you know the content of this verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Union with Christ is the message of personal evangelism. Now, verse 20 could easily be the subject of a whole sermon. It's also been the subject of entire books. It's also been the subject of great debate, which is tragic because the logic here, although stunning, is something that a child can understand. It just describes an exchange that takes place. Interestingly, Paul never mentions the names of the participants in verse 21. Uh, We have a he and a him. The context, I think, is going to lead us to believe this is God the Father and God the Son. For our sake, God the Father made God the Son, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. I remember sitting on these stairs probably seven years ago doing a children's time with Anna and Leah Penalt, and I saw light bulbs go on as they thought through this. You could almost just see them take a breath. Note what verse 21 indicates. Christ had no sin of his own, just as we have no righteousness of our own. Righteousness is as native to us as sin is native to Christ. And that would be not native at all. But for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now back up in verse 19, Paul says that God did not count the trespasses of the world against them. Why? How? Verse 21 gives the answer. Because the trespasses of the world were counted against his son. This is the good news of the gospel. So our sin is reckoned, is imputed to Christ, and furthermore, his, his righteousness is reckoned, is imputed, counted to us. I hope in this verse you hear and you see what Martin Luther called the great exchange. All of our sin moves to Christ on the cross. All of his righteousness moves to us. And all of it is made possible by those two little words, and that's why I made a big deal about this idea of union with Christ, in him. In him, union with Christ is what makes the exchange possible. At the end of the day, what we're calling people to do is be joined to Jesus. Jesus has all the good stuff in him. People have asked over the years, and I asked the question before I was an unbeliever, what could one man's death 2,000 years ago, what effect could that have at all in my life? And the answer is that when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ, we are united to Jesus And all that he has achieved becomes ours. Union with Christ, being in him, is what makes this great exchange possible. Our sin to him, his perfect life credited to us. You can say this to lost people. You can. In fact, I'll I'll say it right now. If If you're with us and this sounds like good news to you today, then you don't have to wait You can be joined to Jesus today. He took the penalty for your sin. He offers you a perfect credit, a perfect store of righteousness. He earned it for you. Be reconciled to God. If you hear my voice, he is making an appeal right now. You can say this to lost people. Verse 21 is the essence of the gospel. For our sake he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, that's it. If our, if our church does not evangelize, our church will fossilize. Many are the motives for personal evangelism. We are the means of personal evangelism, and union with Christ is the message of personal evangelism. The next week is Memorial Day weekend, and we're going to wrap up this sermon series on God's love and ours with a, a Q&A that will cover the waterfront, as it were, with regard to this topic. And so if you've been brewing on this, if you've been having thoughts or comments or questions about the love of God or about our love for God or our love for one another or what love for the lost looks like, write them down. Uh, put them in the offering plate or just bring them with you and ask on Sunday morning and we'll take uh, questions right on the spot. It's going to be a great morning of application together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would move us with the great reality of the love of Christ for us. The love of Christ. Christ's love for us as believers ought to control us. I pray that you would make Mark 117 that is painted above our coffee bar in the fellowship hall a wonderful reality for this church over this next season follow me you say follow me and I will make you become fishers of men Lord Jesus you are so ready and willing to deliver on that promise so I pray that you would draw us to yourself I pray that we would see the glory of the gospel I pray that we would live all of our lives right at the foot of the cross, live in the power of the resurrection, of the empty tomb today, that you would fill us with your spirit. May we follow you this season, and oh, would you make us fishers of men. In Jesus' name, amen.